I bring you greetings from the First Unitarian Universalist Church, where I have the honor and privilege of serving as the executive minister, which is second in control, or second in charge behind the Reverend Gene Pupke. And I'm sure some of you know Reverend Pupke. I'd like to thank Pastor Joel and my friend and sister here, Pastor Janie, for this invitation to come to preach to you all tonight. I asked Janie before you all got here, uh, have you ever had a UU minister preach to you all before? And she told me that you all would be open to new things. <laughs> so I hope that is true. My wife has reminded me that since the 2016 presidential election, that I have become sort of a political news addict. I keep telling her it's just her imagination, but I, you know, as I think about this, she might be right. You see, the first thing in the morning during my devotional time, after reading a meditation by Richard Rohr, or readings from my Unitarian Universalist, Universalist sources, I reach for my iPad and read articles from political website, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. Now, all of this occurs before eating my breakfast and going to the gym. When I come home from the gym and take my shower, I turn on my TV to CNN or MSNBC and turn up the, vol the volume loud enough to hear the program while I'm taking my shower. During my lunch break, usually around noonish, I watch Inside Politics on my iPad, and when I get home, it is Meet the Press Daily. Now, during dinner, it is a dose of Hardball by Chris Matthews, and before I turn in for the night, I make sure to watch Don Lemon on CNN. And did I forget to mention that on Sunday evenings starting at 6 p.m., it is Meet the Press and then KCDC. You know something, my wife might be right. I may be a political addict. I probably need some prayerful intervention. During my daily deluge of political news, it was astonishing to me to discover that the President of the United States has, according to the Washington Post fact checker, made an average of 7.6 false or misleading statements per day since he took office. Now friends, that's 4,229 lies or untruths in 558 days as of July the 1st. Perhaps the president hadn't read Psalms 34:13, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. We are, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, are living in the post-truth era when objective facts are, yes, are less influential in shaping public opinion than appears to emotion and personal beliefs. An absurd, irrational, far-right conspiracy theory purported to be leaked from deep inside the bowels of the government by someone referred to as QAnon is giving credence by hundreds if not thousands of cheering t-shirt t-shirt mega hat wearing participants at Trump campaign rallies. You may ask how absurd or how irrational. Well, according to this, according to this so-called deeply placed source, John F. Kennedy Jr. didn't die and has secretly joined forces with President Trump, who really isn't under investigation, but only pretending to be as a part of a counter coup to restore the power to the people, to the people after more than a century of governmental control by a global cabal. They are being opposed by a ring of pedophiles, who include, pedophiles that include some of the biggest names in Hollywood. Further, it was liberals who killed President Kennedy. 
And of course, Q was not the first person to see a conspiracy behind Kennedy assassination. But in a February post, Q revealed that Trump and his allies recite a daily prayer to JFK in the Oval Office. Rest in peace, Mr. President, it goes. Since your tragic death, patriots have planned, installed, and by the grace of God, activated the beam of light. Now, the beam of light referred to the secret organization which Trump and Q belong, which is formed in the aftermath of Kennedy assassination and is now finally strong enough to begin dismantling the cabal. Q claims to be a high-level high intelligence official within the organization, and obviously he must, or how he know Trump's secret prayer, right? <laughs> and then somehow, JFK Jr. was killed to make way for Hillary Clinton political ambition. I don't know about you all, but it's very confusing to me, but no less convincing to those who wish to be convinced. I know you all are familiar with Alex Jones, he of the InfoWars and the Alex, Alex Jones Show. His podcasts pretend to crop up on the internet from time to time, and they're so absurd that the mainstream media can't help but comment. It's like being a reporter who witnessed a train wreck and refused to report it. Jones specialized in the absurd, and according to him, 9-11 was a hoax, the government was behind the Sandy Hook shooting, and the Parkland kids were uh, crisis actors. White genocide is a real threat, and the chemtrails are used for population control. The new world order is bent on corralling us all into a prison camp, and a deep state is manipulating everyone, except Joan, presumably, through mind control. Absurd urban legends refuse to die. I know you all are familiar with Mr. Roger, the popular children's show host was supposedly once a Navy SEAL sniper in Vietnam and responsible for numerous deaths. And the only reason he wore a sweater was to cover up his tattoos. And that's absolutely untrue, of course. Now here's another one. A kindly motorist stopped to help the guy with a reflect tire and a clueless expression. This hapless motorist stopped to thank the Good Samaritan and asked for his name and address. A few weeks later, this helper received an envelope with $10,000 in cash from Donald Trump, whom, and here's the good part, he had not recognized. Urban legend persists, old scams still cheat people out of their hard-earned money, blatant untruths are passed off as hard-hitting news, truthism has become an acceptable substitute for truth, and the word, hope, the word hoax has come to define anything that insists on being true, no matter how badly we don't want it, we don't want it to be. We have come to admire our political leaders, not for their characters, their integrity, or their leadership skills, but for their cleverness, their guts, their toughness, and their ability to shake things up. And for their willingness to insult, cajole, and blame other leaders for the consequences of their decision. So where in all of this is a place of wisdom? This week, lectionary readings may provide some of the answers. In 1 Kings 2nd chapter, verses 10 to 12, chapter 3, verses 3 to 14, we see that shortly after his father David's funeral, Solomon went to Gibeon, one of the customary high places to make, a sacrifice, make sacrifice to God and ask the Lord for help. He looked over his vast and seemingly endless vista of the land that will someday become Israel. 
he tried to imagine how many Hebrew people dwell in that land for people whom he was now as king responsible. It had to feel overwhelming. And that night, God appeared to Solomon in a dream. You are a good man, he said. You have lived a good life and striving to keep all of my statues from the biggest to the smallest. So tell me what you want and I will give it to you. I want to see that you get started on the right foot. Solomon took a deep breath and responded, well, Lord, it's like this. I don't really feel up to the task you have set before. So what I really need, if I'm going to do this job well, is an understanding mind to discern the difference between good and evil. That's it, God asked. Yes, that's pretty much it, Solomon replied. Well, say God, what you're talking about here, wisdom. You are asking for wisdom. Yeah, I guess I am. You could have asked for money, you know, God said. You could have asked for wealth or fame or power. You could have asked for victory over your enemies or a long life, but you didn't. You asked for wisdom. So say God, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you all the other stuff as well. In Psalms 111, it began with a litany of God's great attributes and mighty deeds. And then he can, the psalmist concluded the hymn by offering a definition of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is to say that the first step to wisdom is to understand that God is awesome and we are not. We may be good, but only God is great. We may be created, but only God is the creator. Those, of, those who would have wisdom would begin by having a relationship with God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 20, Paul began to unpack what looks like the life to live as a wise person. Wise people make the most of time. They put their effort in discerning the will of the Lord. They strive to live sober life, free of debauchery, drunkenness, and filled with a thankfulness to God. And finally, in John 6, verses 51, 51 to 58, John takes the concept of wisdom to an entirely different level. He takes the story of manna which saved the lives of the Hebrew children crossing the wilderness and see, them in the, and see it in a metaphor as a relationship with Jesus to those who follow him. For John, wisdom it has nothing to do with knowledge or even experience. It's not about acting like Jesus or admiring Jesus or becoming a fan of Jesus. For John, wise people are those who seek to abide in Jesus every morning, every moment or every days of their life. It is out of, this kind, out of this kind of relationship that we achieve true discernment, true knowledge of right and wrong, and true wisdom. So what makes for a good leader? Solomon believed it was wisdom that make a leader a good leader. And a quick look around contemporary American culture, however, shows us how catered Solomon's ideas are. Do a Google search and search for characteristics of a good leader, and you might be overwhelmed with the list. Ten here, five there, three, six, a hundred, and on and on. Confidence, sense of humor, positivity, ability to learn from failures, ability to listen, knowing how to delegate responsibility. If you go to the website lifehack.com, it said that good leadership is about acquiring and honing skills. Specifically, they list 10 skills that if practiced in home can allegedly turn anyone into a great leader. 
Other talks about attitudes, and still other talks about values. They all what we might refer to as the practical guides to leadership. And none of them spend a great time on such vague and complex topics as wisdom. And on a rare occasion, when topic of wisdom is broached, is only trite or cliche. Wisdom is almost always identified with advanced age. It's more philosophical than practical, interesting but highly useful. And on those rare occasions when leadership articles do speak of wisdom, their definition of it is fairly pedestrian. Wisdom usually involves the ability to discern or judge what is true, right, or lasting. And the most common synonym are insight and discernment. But until we began to look at the subject of leadership through a theological lens, does the issue of wisdom come to the front of the line? The leaders who wish to lead with wisdom understand that the first step in that direction is that true wisdom is not grounded in oneself, but in God. It's involved in embrace of God, commitment, and values. It is an appropriate relationship with God, a relationship that knows that God is great and that only God is the creator and we are God creations. May this be so.